0: Hello, <laughs> hello. My name is uh, Scott Putnam, and I'm going to tell you my story about my three boys, Briggs Soren, and Ryder, who I've been alienated for for 983 days. I live in France, and a number of false allegations and lies have prevented me from seeing them. And I'm using Find My Parent so that they can uh, find their way back to me. I hope you enjoy my story.
1: In this episode of Your Double Podcast, we are speaking to Scott Putnam. His kids were abducted from him by his wife almost four years ago and you will hear his story throughout this episode. Most people think that abduction and alienation only happens in young marriages where the couple have been married for less than a decade. However, Scott's story proves that it can happen to anyone even if you've been married to someone for decades. This is the first part of the two-part conversation that we had with Scott. In part one, we will discuss about what happened between him and his wife, and in the next part, we will talk about the red flags, things that other parents and left behind parents can learn from Scott's experience and so on. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hey Scott, first of all, thank you for taking the time to be on our podcast. I know through our prior conversations that your story is somewhat unique compared to most parents who have been on these podcasts, but we will get to that later. First of all, I would like to know what type of family values did you grow up in and how was your upbringing as a whole? I ask this question to make sure that the listeners understand what type of husband and father you wanted to be and what aspirations you had for your family life. So let me know if you had any aspirations and values that indicates what kind of dad and husband you wanted to be before all this happened to I you. I do.
0: Uh-huh. 100%. Um so I I grew up in a I mean my the the family I grew up in my parents were married over 60 years and none of my siblings have been divorced. Um so for me the idea of like being divorced was um wasn't even quite possible. Um or it very unlikely, I think there was a strong sense of family values i didn't do any drugs i didn't do um even though i was you know I was born in the late in nineteen sixty eight um and sort of grew up let's say at the late end of the hippie generation there was very little of of that um element in my family it was very it was more conservative i would say than someone of a similar age and um we weren't religious, but I think we had very, um, I was brought up with conservative views. And I think it's only with, even with time, that my view on family as being like the primary element of your life and the institution. It's not your career. It's not your um. um um it's not politics it's not even science which i was highly engaged with in the scientific community that the family unit is like the primary element of your um of your life in terms of creating joy and happiness and what i became focused on and um i didn't i didn't get there in any um i wasn't guided there i'll say by some By a pastor, or even by my parents, it just seemed natural to me, Um, and that uh, having having children was something both my wife and I wanted, and um, in a very genuine way, without a lot of lot of thought about it. And I think there was never even a consideration of of um, uh, I don't know being a single parent or a divorce. This never even entered our or debate at any time, so I think I'm I'm placing myself in a. If I compare myself to sort of my contemporaries, that I'm much I'm more conservative in a sense, much more focused on family values than an average person, um, and I would say my wife was as well. And I think it all it all came unravelled, but it was quite unusual. It wasn't uh, it wasn't like we were too um, um let's say party goers that just hooked up and had a baby and then separated there was not nothing like that this was very traditional family and then it split when my wife hit menopause and had this mental crisis so um it's different in that sense than some of these other let's say other other stories but it's the same in the sense that there's some um Mental, break, men, mental breakage.
1: I see. You mentioned that it was a happy and nurturing relationship before she hit menopause. Can you explain how did you and your wife met and how was she before things started to go south?
0: Yeah, I think, um, so we, we were both, I was 27. I think she was 28. She's one year older than me. Um, and we met at, um, she was at Columbia University um and i was there we were both studying we were both getting our i was getting my PhD in physics and she was getting it in mathematics and we met through um a friend I was my um my lab mate so to speak um he was a German guy but he was um his girlfriend was her roommate and that's how we met uh, at uh we went out for a party at Halloween and um so we're you know we're at being twenty seven and twenty eight years old we're both we're we're past that uh stage in life where you're uh, we we both had boyfriends or girlfriends a couple at a time and, and we are I want to say past that just uh, emotional state and um and then we met and we had this like incredible uh romance for um it was so intense like she was the smartest woman I'd ever met at that time and um which very much attracted me and i think similarly and we ended up getting married within i think four months after we went out on our first date and um it was just this whirlwind and we and then it was another um about six years we were married before we had children so there was a lot of time we had together to develop our marriage and before we had children even. Everything like everything fits in place. There was there were so many common common elements um, that would make us compatible, and um, we come from different different backgrounds. She comes like like I just said. I came from a very conservative family growing up and very stable and so on. She comes from a very unstable family, and I'll, I can get to that that she was actually did exactly what she's done to my kids. She was abducted as a child, but. Um, the at the time I I didn't imagine any it it was also forward looking and and positive there was um, no resist um, like no regrets no um, no uh, I want to say no no second thoughts on my part I was like I was totally in love I think she was totally in love and even for the 20 years of our marriage, there was never a complaint at the old time. I think we really had a a fantastic life and we moved around the world. We lived in multiple places. Um, I can just fill in some details here because my life is a little, or our life is a little bit complicated in the sense that I'm American, she's Canadian. Um, And we lived in multiple places in the US like Houston and New York and San Francisco and Utah. And then we moved to Zurich and then ultimately we, we lived in Chamonix. This is all over a period of 20 years um, and, um, and then it suddenly broke. Um, but. In terms of the meeting, we had this this common element of being both highly educated and curious and interesting people. Um, and through that time, I was um, I was the one that had the job. She never actually worked, which I think became a, an issue in the long-term in sense of her generating some kind of uh, self-respect and self-esteem in herself and growing uh, growing up. But we had enough, uh, we had enough money and enough um, interest in our world that it wasn't necessary that she worked. Um, so I'll leave it there for your next question.
1: How about both your families accepting each other? Again, I have a purpose in asking these questions. I just want to make sure that there was no animosity from your family or anybody from your side and anything like that that made her alienate you from the kids. I want our listeners to understand that this is a situation where everything went perfect and somebody just flipped.
0: Correct. There was some, um, both I have four siblings and my parents all said, uh, it's, you know, think about it a little bit more. And I dismissed them. And she's, um, we'll call her black, but she, she's mixed, uh, her mother's uh, black from the Caribbean and her father's a white Canadian. Um, but that was never the, the race was never an issue. It was more that we met so quickly and, um, that I ought to give it some time and, um, so there there was some resistance to that, but um, it wasn't um, from, well, I can, if I revert back, her parents, so we had the, we when we had the wedding, it was, on, it was almost, almost my family. Her parents did come, uh, her sister did not come, um, and almost none of her family came, and that should have, it could have been a red, or should have been a red flag to me in the sense that her family was broken down, but I didn't recognize that because I grew up in this kind of normal family and didn't expect that everybody else grew up in a normal family. And um, so the wedding took place just with my family. And there was some resistance at first, but I just said, we're getting married. And they accepted it. I think I was um, I was well um, liked, I'll say, in my family. And I was so forceful in my I said, this is the woman of my dreams, and we're um we're gonna get married. And and so it was it was accepted by the time there was you know doubt for a few weeks, still till the wedding, and then everybody absolutely adored her. She's uh she's charismatic and and I would even say some of my um some of my cousins, aunts and uncles ended up liking her more than me because she was so lovable. Um so there was some resistance at first because it was a a quick marriage, and but I don't think um, you know everything comes unravelled twenty years later, and but I don't think it has anything to m- my view, and I've reflected on this in, <laughs> in incredible detail. Um, I don't think my mistake was marrying her in the beginning. Something changed in her at a certain age later on, and she has this. Um, she had a mental breakdown, but um we really did have a great um a great marriage for many years so that's um so that gives a perspective of what happened um and her and, and let me um so to just to fill that in again her family was particularly absent, and I think that's what um I did not pay attention to, I really, where I fault myself is not marrying her, not making a decision to marry her in three months. But what I didn't pay attention to is that she was, um, her family had all of these other marital issues. So her mother abducted her when she was a child for a number of years from her father and took her to the Caribbean. And then her sister had a failed marriage. Okay. Her mother had another child with someone else. It was all very dysfunctional. And, uh, And I dismissed all this because I was totally in love and gaga with with her. And um, I assumed we we were smart enough and would overcome all these things.
1: You briefly just mentioned that uh, you rushed into the marriage, right? You wanted to get married because you were so in love, but that's okay. But how did you guys go about the decision to have kids? Was your wife happy to be a mother and wanted it for herself? And of course, what type of mother was she? I'm asking this to show the listeners that it's not like you rush into having so we, kids as well. It was it, somewhat planned.
0: D- good question. And, um, and I think in our case, we got married at 27, 28. And we ended up working, I was working in Houston and we had this sort of, uh, I want to say, you know, a life of young people. We, with my with, We finished school together, getting our PhDs, but then we had an income that we could go out and party and do all kinds of things. And we talked about, we always planned to have children, but we pushed them off for, for a little bit. And then um, we were living in New York. I was working on uh, Wall Street as a financial trader and September 11th happened. And this is really what I want to say. She, she wasn't working and she, she was pushing to have children. And I kept, said you know one more year of making a lot of money something like that would and then we'll then we'll have children we'll change our life but after september 11th happened we talked about um everything changed our perspective um in terms of that we really want to accelerate having a family and so um we ended up um we we i actually quit my job after september 11th and we took we traveled around the world um, for a whole year um, with um, visiting different places and exploring with the idea of uh, starting, starting a family at the end. And we had, she got pregnant, but then had, when we were in New Zealand, she had a ectopic pregnancy, which means, uh, so the plan was to have a family right at that time. She did get pregnant. But then she was in the hospital because uh, ectopic pregnancy is where you have the the child starts to grow in the fallopian tube and then her whole um i want to say her not her uterus but the the tube became burst okay and she was close to dying or i would even say almost died having this pregnancy so it was a big event and then we so we moved back to the states and after that and then who were born subsequently were born in vitro with uh, fertility um, assistance um, because of this problem that her her uterus was um, exploded. So if you're asking, in, it is very much a planned pregnancy in this case. So we even when we married, we planned to have a family. And then she did get pregnant. We planned to have a family and then it broke. And then subsequently we moved on to actually, you know, it was so planned that you go to the doctor and you have, uh, <laughs> you organize your pregnancy essentially. So that's all three of the children were born. Or, so to be clear, there were, um, the first boy um, was born in vitro and then the next two are identical twins. They were also born in vitro in a, in a clinic uh Lizanne gave my wife gave gave birth to them in a normal way but they were implanted in her um through this process so um it's very clear that we there were there was no um <laughs> there was no coercion about having a family or any uncertainty about wanting to have children i wanted to have more children um than the three but that um we we, we stopped at three because of um uh, uh, her her request that we not have more.
1: And of course, the last part of my question just now, what kind of mother was she, even before the abduction and all that, like how was she as a mother?
0: I would say she was, um, so uh, I'll re- return to the same thing. The reason we didn't have a fourth child or a fifth child, okay, was because of the insanity around the pregnancy. She was quite, I think she was, um very good with the kids after 2 or 3 months but the this postpartum depression she was completely insane and my wife would agree with this that she was she called it mommy, mommy mush brain she was totally insane about the kids when they were born like she was so hormonal and hysterical and insane that during the last months of the pregnancy and when the kids were born that it was it, she was hard to even uh, control, hard to understand, so um, it wasn't that we didn't want four or five kids in the end. it was going through the pregnancy that was so so difficult but um, I would say
2: that and i and this is where I think um,
0: she'd agree with me very much that the during those during the months of the pregnancy, particularly the last three, four months of the pregnancy and the first, let's say six months of the, the children, she was completely incoherent at being able to be a person. Afterwards, I think she was uh, much better. And w- what I realize now is that this these hormonal changes in her, um, during the pregnancy and then during menopause, which is when our whole separation happened, is when she um, was unable to control her emotions and become sort of a, uh, exist as an, a rational, normal person that became the problem. Uh, it's, it's really a failure to control your, um, for her to control her emotional state versus her, her, her rational state.
1: Awesome. I think we know a lot about how did you guys meet and what type of person she was and what type of person you were and all that. Now let's talk about your kids. Tell me a little bit about them and what other kids are they? Are they like difficult? Were they close to you or your wife? Yeah, tell me a bit about your family so the
0: so the first one, and you have to realize my so my wife is looks she's dark I wouldn't say she's black she's brown um and the my oldest son break is um looks just like me he's white and then my the twins that came later are mixed they're lighter than my wife, but they're um, not quite dark they're all so all three are boys not like um, and they are they were referred to by our friends and others as as uh, wild and um, free um, savages you might say really a lot of energy um, so if you had um, and this was partly by by design it, the way I like to live, but we we lived a very liberal life where you could do do lots of things. There weren't a lot of constraints. We lived in different parts of the world, and they had um, tremendous opportunities to study um, all kinds of topics, go to school, travel. We've been um, around the world, um, numerous places, um, do lots of sports, music, um, lots of ideas. So they were, I would say they're very curious. Um, If you have like, if you have a dog that's just full of energy, that's what my kids were like, always, always interested in something, looking for something. Um, And there's, there's differences in their, in their personality, but were they, um, let's say you asked if they were attached to me more,
2: Um, I would say in, in general they
0: were um it was very balanced in terms of they were we had it we we discussed how having like a wolf pack we were we lived like um a, a family that moves around the world and we were isolated ourselves we lived in whether it was in france or switzerland or new york then we, we we truly did move around as a family very um loving each other more than um, I want to say even the the kids, the boys defended each other. We defended each other um, more than they were involved in their community, wherever we were. Um, So there was no preference towards um, my wife or towards me. Um, We were equal in terms of parenting, um, in terms of spending time with them. yeah, I think that's, it gives a good, a good sense of, uh, just this healthy, healthy family relationship. Everything breaks in the end, but at the time, um, each one was treated independently for their little difference. Like my oldest break is quite a bit, is a little bit more, let's say cerebral than, than the others. Like Soren is very adventurous and riders, um, moves around as a as an athlete um but there was no um to put it in contrast to let's say some other stories where where you might imagine like the mother takes care of the kids and the father's just off working there was none of that in in our family it was very much uh a balanced environment.
1: Yeah. We talked at length about you being a husband. We talked at length about your wife and the kids, but now let's talk about you. What kind of father were you? So, <laughs> yeah, I think it's crucial because, you know, the last part of these doubts that people will have is maybe they will just disregard everything you're going to say and think that, oh, you was a bad father. That's what these have. That's why these happened. So this, um,
0: this comes after a lot of, um, so my, my family broke down in 2017 an entirely huge shock to me. Okay. And I spent like at least an entire year trying to figure out what I did because I was told I was this horrible father by my wife. And, um, and what I realized after reviewing everything, like 20 years of our life and everything, my, a uh, comprehensive view of investigating all of that is just the contrary. That what happened, my kids had just reached. I had done going on a bar mitzvah with my oldest son. We're not Jewish, but we had a bar mitzvah event. He was coming of age, and is that it was actually my um, my performance as a father. I was spending now that they were teenagers. I was had demoted my career to spend a lot more time with my kids i thought that it was worth spending time teaching them i'm like this is the one chance i get to you know really form their ideas and be part of their life because once they go to college they will um then they're off on their own so i i decided to spend the next um you know five seven years of my life being just devoted to the family and not so focused on my work career. And um, and what happened I think is that I became, so to answer your question, I think I became like uh, a tremendously um, positive influence on the kids, a great father. I was dedicated to the lives we did uh, from, uh, we whether we cooked together, we do weekends. We do these holidays. These trips. Um, we had a weekly uh, seminar because we're intellectuals, right? We do something. We'd have a, uh, for a couple hours a night, One, once a week. We'd have some some topic we would discuss that was always interesting and outside of wasn't dry, but something that you wouldn't might not learn in school. And they were they absolutely adored this kind of information and. So I'm circling back on your question what happened in from the breakup of the family is I became much more beloved by the kids than my wife did I didn't real I thought my it's not just my job I was focused on being a great father that was I mean I dedicated myself to it it was more, my primary energy was focused on being a father because I thought I've this limited window in my life I'm going to do this and I think This is part of what precipitated the break in my family. My wife felt um, a gap or denigrated in comparison. The boys and their boys, they liked me, particularly as they enter the teenage years. They became much more attached to me than to her. And this is part of um, the tension that precipitated everything.
2: So just, I know... Worst father in the world you
0: you know you list all the things um but it's just the opposite in the world i i think my my crime in the end was becoming too good of a father um i wasn't even just average i was well above average in a father and that that was part of what caused this um this uh, terror in our relationship so i was i was highly involved i wasn't just uh I wasn't kicked out of my life. I wasn't coerced by my wife not to do anything. We were, um, we were working together for their lives. But then once I started focusing so much of my energy on their upbringing and their education, and they're, they're also all three of them were very highly intelligent. And I was teaching them, homeschooling them. Um, and this became a source of uh, contention with my wife.
1: Yeah, as you briefly alluded just now, in 2017, all went to hell, right? Can you explain what happened in detail? Because I know you and we had prior conversations about this before, so I kind of know what happened. But for the benefit of the listeners, can you explain a bit deeper about all the events that led up to what happened in
0: 2017? Um, Yes, I'm still trying to unpack it all myself. Um, So when... In the end of July in 2017, I was coming back from a business trip. We live in France at this point, and I'm coming back from a business trip in, in the U.S. I was gone for 10 days or so. And um, and suddenly, my boys, that day arrived, the boys were not very friendly to me. And then that evening, um, my wife, Lisanne, tells me that she wants me to move out of the house. This all is, I've never once have we had like a big argument or a fight for some months at that point. And in fact, she was even videotaping me and audiotaping me in this conversation that she had. I only learned that later. Um, so she had planned this event where I came back and she, um, and it was just um, huge a huge shock to me because I never had a single complaint from her. Um, I can even I even have all of her emails for 20 years and not a single uh, statement to her friend or to her family that I was that I was a problem. And then suddenly everything broke. And I think um, so what what I know now, what I didn't know then, um, because I can I can talk about this in two ways. What what happened to me over the next year trying to figure out what my wife was telling me. And saying this is wrong and that's wrong and you're a terrible person. She said that you've changed suddenly and you're a horrible guy. And then she told me a few months, you know, a day or a month later that I'd been bad for 20 years. Um, All those things I was trying to sort out. But let's, if I fast forward to like a year, so to go to 2018, when I figured this all out, that all this is a big lie. And she didn't have any, she had a mental breakdown and didn't know anything she was saying. The reason she couldn't tell me why she wanted a divorce was because she didn't know herself. I kept thinking she didn't want to tell me what it was. What did I do? What did I do wrong? Um, Why couldn't she tell anybody else what was wrong? Um, But it turns out that I I think now that from from hindsight, I know that she, she had no idea herself what the problem was and it's really her own um mental instability her own mental breakdown but at the time it was just a complete earthquake to me and when you if we can get into what the court system is she said you have to leave the house and i need some time to heal and i said well this is crazy but if that's what you need i was very comforting and she told me to Fix the, fix the, renovate the bathroom and buy a new kitchen table. She, she she just wanted these like trivial things. And I thought, okay, well, if that makes you happy, I, we all go through a little bit of crisis. I think, okay, well, this will all get solved that. She literally just told me she needed some time to heal. I just needed to leave for a moment. And she took the kids to her family in the Caribbean uh, for a few months. And I fixed up the house and thought she'd come back. Um, And she came back in um, six weeks. And then she said, you have to leave the house. And I said, no, if I leave the house by French law, I won't have any. um, If I voluntarily leave the the house for six weeks, then I lose all custody of the children. So I refuse to move out. And this was the trigger that then started this cascade of uh, child abduction because I refused uh, to move out of the house um, for the six because I refused to give up my kids. And, and then it's just a sequence of, I want to say unlikely things, but it really started out quite innocently. I think my wife really was um, fragile and uncertain and mentally, let's say cognitively unstable and um, and then it just it grew into this massive um, massive problem where she's um, harming the children and and abducting them and I would say torturing them today. Um, but that's it, uh, I would say in contrast, or I don't know if in contrast, but it's another story to tell on your podcast that everything in our uh, marriage was quite serene, happy. It's not not perfect, okay, but we rarely had by any comparison to my friends or um, I think about the other people in their marriages. Ours was really quite stable and good, and nobody would expect it. I certainly never expected to have a divorce. Like it, I thought I would have said it was, you know, close to. Uh, zero percent, tenth of one percent, like almost impossible. And I think most of my friends and family would have said the same thing. We really had a tight family. And then it all just unraveled, um, quickly. It was very functional and good up until, and then it just broke very suddenly. Um, so I'll, I'll let you ask another question because I, 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 you know, I ran out of ideas there.
1: No worries, Scott. You mentioned briefly that she recorded you so that she can ambush and do this to you. Uh, for months prior to that event happening, can you explain a bit about why did she do that and what was happening during the time that made her do all those?
0: Yeah, so like we'd never had so that the, so this is in July of 2017. We go out to our to the yard or to the garden of our where we're living in France. And uh, and it's the first time she tells me that I have to leave the house. So and nothing like this. It was uh, like we'd never even had it. Dis- we'd never even mentioned divorce or had any kind of marital problem to begin with ever in 20 years. Never been any discussion about this. And I was like, well, you know, what the fuck are you talking about? And it turns out that she was filming me and had me uh audio taped okay so what i and i didn't know that at the time that she had cameras set up but there was also a friend a male friend who had come by who was monitoring it all so she had arranged all of this i, I want to say in the in the weeks or a couple months before when she, she had started visiting this psychiatrist and she was somehow unhappy with her life and decided that this is the best way you know, she'd get me, she said some provocative things. Like she said, you have, you have a gun and these other things trying to get me to be provocative. And I didn't say anything. This whole uh, audio tape came up in the court later. And there's nothing that I said other thing. I called her, I said, I called her weak and pathetic. And this is outrageous. Okay. Those are the most, um, that's the most I said. And she used that as evidence as though I was an asshole and that I was domineering and coercive. Okay. And when I look back at it now, I think, wow, I was incredibly reserved that I didn't just like strangle her and say, this is, this is totally unacceptable. You're destroying our family. And I mean, particularly what I know now, the way she's locked our children in a home and they don't go to school and they don't have sports and all the child abduction, if I had any idea what she would do in the subsequent years, I wouldn't have reacted so gently to her. Um, but at the time, um, she she was clearly directed by somebody else. She wouldn't have had this knowledge herself. She she was coached into creating um, creating this divorce and setting it up so that she could separate from me. Somebody taught her that she would be happy again if I was removed from her life. And I think this is a, um, actually this, the source of the problem. She has this, let's say, a midlife crisis, and somebody has coached her into saying, the problem is your husband, and um, which wouldn't have been natural to her at all. And then it began this uh, cycle of a few lies about what I did and then it just metastasized into um, where it is today a complete disaster where my kids are locked in their home, don't go to school, don't go to sports, um, have no footprint on social media, are locked away. I'm now, um, I've lost my job because she's tried to get me criminally convicted, Um, so the 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 cascade has has broken everything in her life, our kid's life, in my life. Um, but she had no idea what she was doing in the beginning, and nor did the psychiatrist. They just thought this is the right thing to do instead of trying to restore the family. There was no like, why don't you work whatever whatever uncertainty and feelings you're having in your life now? Let's try and work them out. Somebody coached her into saying. Um, tear it. And then once it, once it started, um, it ended up into a, a much worse disaster than anybody could have imagined.
1: I noticed that you said that someone external or outside your family coached her to abduct the kids. Now I'm just wondering if the influence came from how she was brought up, as you mentioned way earlier, in the conversation that she was abducted when she was young too. What is your opinion on that so
0: yeah let me let me try and be be precise here that she was abducted as a as a child when she was about uh, six years old and her sister was about four years old. Her mother took her from her father to the Caribbean okay and took her away for a number of years um, and it was through a long process that her father they they somehow tried to reconstitute a little bit together. Okay. But my wife through her whole life, even when, when we were married, she talked about how she felt neglected by her, by her parents and how she hated her mother. And if you, I mean, if you visit her mother, Patty today, she's uh, completely insane. Gaga. He, like she just, anybody who knows her would say that she belongs in a mental institution. And Um, my wife's much more competent in comparison, but so I think that her, there's always been a fear in my wife that she would regress towards this, the way, what her mother did. Okay. And, and I was, uh, I want to say stupid and not thinking that this was a realistic, I am stupid and thinking it's not a realistic possibility, but I really had confidence in my wife that she had understood what her mother did and would somehow compensate for it. But this fear, and I want to use the word fear in particular, this this fear of everything unraveling in your life and your kids hating you or not respecting you and being neglected was enough to drive the anxiety in my wife to go to a psychiatrist. So I think this, and then the psychiatrist, um, and she's been to a couple now, and put her on drugs and think um, they give her the idea that you can just be, um, you should just be happy. And if you're, if you're unhappy, well, the most obvious thing is that it's your husband that makes you unhappy. If your kids aren't perfect, it's the husband's problem, right? Um, Or it's this problem where he doesn't make enough money or he's um, it's never directed at my wife trying to reconstitute her own life. She never worked. Okay. She has a PhD in math. She's more than capable of getting a job and doing something. And she chose not to do it. It was, it was a source of contention through, through those 20 years. Cause I always thought she'd feel better about herself if she actually job, even just worked part time so that she would have something that she was proud of, of herself. And it, um, we never managed to to make that happen. It was,
2: um, I want um, to,
0: this leads to this midlife crisis, I'll say, when she's 50 years old and hitting menopause and not seeing herself as, um, you start to see the end of your life. And just months before, two two months before this whole thing happened in July, she had visited her grandmother in Canada who was is, who is dying. And I think all of these things coalesced into her starting to see her own mortality and that she hadn't accomplished, um, anything. And the kids weren't, while they were great, they did fine in school and they were decent ski racers, for example, but they weren't perfect. They weren't geniuses and they weren't Olympic level ski racers. And those things all ate at, um, ate at her expectations of what they would be. And, um,
2: And I think, um,
0: I'll uh, I'll try and be clear here again, the fact that she videotaped me when she told me to move out of the house is never, I know her well enough for 20 years, is never something she would think of herself. She was never disciplined about anything. She was kind of, um, she never worked, she never uh, was careful. Okay. She was, she was great, but very emotional person. Um, So the idea that she videotaped me is clear that somebody else coached her to do this, taught her to do this. And then later, and I know subsequently what happened with the psychologists and so on in the child services, they were giving her instructions, what to do to get rid of me. Um, This wouldn't have been in her constitution. She, she wasn't, um, just wasn't part of her character to do, um, to think of these things. So I do think that she was unhappy and anxious with her life um, at this point. And somebody gave her an idea that she could be happy if she was a single mother. Um, and, she, you know, stupidly, suddenly she's a lot poorer and doesn't have a father around to help take two people to take care of the kids. Let alone provide, you know, the the difference between a mother and father. All those things were, um, I think, are absent in most psychologists. For example, most people we see on social media, they don't understand the relevance of a two-parent family anyway. Single parents are even promoted, and um, and I think that she was she was um, coached this way, and thought here's 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 the sequence to get rid of the kids. That's why it began with. I'm just a little unhappy. I need a little bit of time to heal. Let me calm down. And then it goes through like clockwork over the next year and a half. There's just a sequence of these increasing allegations against me to get rid of me. And every time I point out that my wife has committed some fraud, whether it's financial or an allegation of abuse or something like that, I go to the court and then she gets in trouble with that then it metastasizes into something worse where then she eventually takes the kids entirely because she won't let the kids um, find out that she's, uh, that she's committing this fraud and uh, telling all these lies. Yeah,
1: that brings me to the review and also research I did on your case to figure out what was happening. I saw that uh, in your case, it was mentioned that uh, she filed a fraudulent tax report that you make four times more money than what you were actually earning. Now, I'm just wondering what was the reason for that? Because that kind of seems silly. And even if she did two times, maybe she can prove it. But four times is kind of too much for anybody to fool anyone. So what do you think was happening then? So
0: this is, again, my, my wife's never filed. She's never bought a plane ticket. She's never filed a tax form, right? She's 50 years old. She's never done any of these things in her life, right? I took care of the whole administrative part of our family life. The day that she tells me to leave the family to to leave the house okay forged my signature on a tax form in france okay i've never um I've never worked in France okay, even when we lived in France, I worked for a company in the u k so what she did obvious from either from her psychiatrist or a lawyer okay she went to the tax office. She forged my name and said that my income was four times what we'd paid the previous year in the UK, in France. The idea was because now when she goes to the French court to get a divorce, she will get half of that. So if she files at four times my income, she will get my entire income because she gets half of it, at least. So it turns out it was even more. I simply. She was asking. The, the The court demanded that I pay more than my entire income. And so, when I when I went to the the divorce, so now this is about a year later after all of this happened. So she she filed it. That's important. She filed it on the day she asked me to leave. Okay, so it's very calculated. Okay, so finally we have a divorce court a year later, and I show. The court, that there's a fraudulent uh, signature and that my income is a quarter of what this is, okay, they agree with it. I have a form from the tax department in France, one that I've never worked there, and even my income in the UK is a quarter of what she says it is, okay? So the court then pushes, it, it, it accepts what I said was my income, one quarter of that. So then in the divorce appeal, six months later, we have another court event. She comes in and she says, oh, Scott didn't say that he works for this company in another company in the UK and another company in Switzerland and that he's hiding all this money. She actually created employment documents totally fraudulently from whole cloth so that she could come up with this four times my income again and i managed i she submitted these documents that like a friday night and by monday morning when we had our court case i managed to get those companies to say scott's never worked for this company okay the one in the uk and the one in switzerland um and they're they're um it's just total it's it's this massive fraud um that's committed by my wife and the the reason is she's trying to get more money f- from me and she has no idea, um, she, I want to say she was so embarrassed by being humiliated by the first one of having the amount of her monthly payment being cut down by half the first time that she said, oh, well, there's these other bits of money that there's, there's ex- extra money being made elsewhere. So she's support is, um, they just can't. Um, what I want to say is, while they agree with me, they don't punish her. So my payment, my monthly payment has been pushed down to what I'm supposed to pay on my basic income. But they don't punish her for one, doing the tax fraud. They know it's a tax fraud. They agreed with it, but they don't punish her for it. And then in the second, in the appeal case, they don't punish her for two letters of uh, employment, seeing I worked at these other places as well um, they don't punish her for making these fraudulent statements that I'm employed at somewhere that i I've never worked for um, it's um, it's something that it, it's so unsettling to me that every time I go to court there's something. Uh, You can never even imagine you're alleged to have done something that you can't even imagine. The lies are so outrageous. Um, And then you're you're scrambling and she submits them just before they go to the court. And I'm suffering even today, suffering similar things with like criminal charges. Apparently, I've committed violence against my kids when I haven't even seen them for three years. Um, But that's okay, as far as the court's concerned or as far as she's concerned. They're just outrageous lies, and the court agrees with them eventually, but they never punish her, so they continue on and on and on, and there'll be more in the future, I'm sure.
1: All right. Now, let's move on from that. You say that sometime after, she blackmailed you with a gun, and that caused a nuclear event in this whole situation that you were in. Can you explain a bit about how that came about and how she decided to go about doing that? So uh, you're, you're talking
0: about the gun? Is that what you said? Yep. Uh, yeah.
1: Because in your case, it says uh, in August 2017, she blackmailed you with a gun.
0: Right. So she has a gun that's registered in her name. She has a concealed weapon license in Utah. Okay. We're living in France. She takes the gun to the police and guns are um, illegal, generally in France. Okay. And you have to, People are in Europe in particular, compared to America, we're Americans. She's Canadian, but... We've always lived more or less in the U.S. Okay. She takes a gun to the police in France and says, I know nothing about guns. And if if I read you the the full statement, she says, my husband owns an AK-47 and he's he's a nutty American. She claimed to be like French and she knows nothing about guns and she's terrified of me. Okay. Guess who the gun is registered to? The gun is registered in my wife's name. Okay, it's her gun. She has a concealed weapons permit for it, but she takes it to the police, okay, and says that it's my gun. And so the police come and arrest me and say and they actually they broke into my apartment. So now I'm living separately outside the house, okay? They break into the apartment and they they rifle through it without any warrant or anything like that. Looking because there's this paranoia that I have a concealed gun. So she creates this hysteria about the gun. And in our first um, court case, the protective order, she goes hysterical about this gun, that God thinks that there's, he's going to kill me, he's got a gun, and so on. And the judge says, where's the gun? I'm terrified. Like, I don't care whose gun it is, just where is it? Is it going to kill me? There's no... There was no ability by the judge to determine um, any kind of sanity, like how this whole story of the gun became even an issue. But my wife took it. It's her gun. She took it to the police and created this story that I'm like a madman walking around with a gun when it's her gun. And she took it to the police. This, um, I know it it probably sounds unbelievable on the podcast, but this is, I, I could tell you, you know dozens of stories like this where the idea is to go to the police with some outrageous story that she's involved like she commits child abuse and claims that it's me she has the gun and claims that I'm the one that has the gun um she's the one that does the tax fraud and then says I don't pay the taxes and it goes on and on like this and I'm always being in a reflexive mode trying to defend myself you're always on the back foot saying no, that's not me, and every time i and um come with my lawyers and prove everything that my wife has uh, fraudulently did all these things, they were like, "Okay, you're right, Scott, but they don't punish her ever, and so what happens is then the thirteenth one happens, and the fourteenth one, and the fifteenth one she just goes on and on um and that's where I am today. It's just a continual process of her making allegations against me that in increasing in terms of their severity and nobody's willing to to hold her hands to the fire and say you got to stop like how how can you take my my oldest son brig is a brilliant kid he hasn't been in school for three years okay and i go to the court and say why is it doesn't he have to go to school it's by law in france he should at least be in school oh no it's okay she says it's okay they just continue to let her, um, um off from any kind of, uh, any kind of punishment or censor, any kind of, um, uh, stoppage. You, you, she's, she's black, she's a woman, she's beautiful, and nobody is willing to say that she is wrong. And that's where I'm stuck in these court cases continually.
1: And you also mentioned in your case that there was multiple allegations of violence that was not true uh, that she made, including like, you know, you broke your son's nose and all that. Can you explain a little bit deeper on that? Because I know from my experience talking to a lot of parents that, you know, domestic violence allegations are quite ordinary in these kinds of situations. But in your case, she did it over and over again. So can you explain a bit about what happened right. there? So
0: this is a good example of, there's been multiple allegations of where I've been violent, and all of them have been um, uh, disproven in the sense that there's no evidence. But here's an example where, so, and even even my son Briggs says I broke his I broke his nose by throwing a baseball at him. Okay, and this would have happened before we lived in France, which was done by design because um, just legally. OK, the the time period we are living in France, they said the only that the, um, the criminal case of violence, me against the children, will only take place for the time we lived in France and not the time we lived in the US. So she created this story where there was violence before we lived in France. And she said, I broke Briggs nose. So Briggs is 17 now, but that by hitting him with a baseball. So apparently I threw a baseball according to the story, and hit him with a nose. And so this would have been in um, like 2010 or something like that. So let's say 10 years ago. So it's clear that there would have been either a doctor's certificate, okay? We would have gone to the doctor or a picture that would have gone to the grandparents or to to me somewhere. I have all the emails from that whole time, right? We have emails from 2005, all on G. Um, Gmail and so on. I have every one of her emails. There's not a single statement of Brig ever breaking his nose. Okay. Ever, there's no picture, there's no doctor's certificate. It's just all it, it's it's creating a narrative that somehow some horrible thing happened to him. And my son, she's coached him to actually believe this. Okay, because he's told the police that I broke his nose with a with a baseball. And it sounds so terrible that it's enough to say that I'm a violent father and I need to be removed from the from the children. And here's an example. I think uh, there's been others of other allegations like this. But there's a good example where. There would clearly be some kind of paper trail from a doctor's certificate, either, you know, some kind of score on his nose um, a, a corroboration from a parent I've asked any of my any of the grandparents' aunts and uncles do you know anything about brig ever breaking his nose and i have I have it on their sworn statements never it's never happened, so this has been the progression that I've gone through legally is that these kind of allegations are made, and then I have to scramble all the evidence and I have to prove my innocence. And then I prove it all, and then we go on to the next one. And then she says, "Okay, well then you threw Brick down the hallway, or you put him, you know, you put him outside in his underwear, things like this." And it goes on and on and on, and I, um, it's just endless because you have to prove your innocence each time, and nobody is willing to take her and say, "You got to stop this process of of lying to the court." And I think this is a common element in these. I, I could. You know, in this parental alienation case, it, my, mine's not unique in that sense. It's the lies about uh, events that create this tension between the parents. Um, it's not, I don't really think that my wife hates me. What she hates is that I will tell the kids what actually happened um, about their life and that it wasn't so bad. Um, in fact, we had a good life before and so she's trying to she's just trying to legally create the separation and she's using the court as a weapon against me All right so she's not uh, i'll be clear she's not even my ex-wife i'm i'm not sure i'll ever get a divorce from her because it, it, there's no way of negotiating with she, she'll never settle about anything so she'll always be my wife as far as i can tell <laughs> like I'll, I'll i'll never be able to get a divorce from her i've tried um But after, if I go back to the events, there was this, she asked me to move out. And I, I tried, like I fixed up the house and made flowers and tried to make everything nice. And she, she went to the, she visited her parents for a few months and then came back. And then I learned that the time period was exactly the six weeks where if I voluntarily gave up, um, if I moved out of the house for six weeks and by French law, I would give up any rights to the children. So I said i'm not moving out." And this is what began then this campaign to it, the, the next day when i said i'm not moving moving out," and she came back from the Caribbean. Then she went to um, the police and she filed a protective order against me. There had never been a single complaint about me being like violent or a bad husband, and then suddenly, so it's all it, it's all illegal procedure so as soon as i said well i'm not moving out of the house because i'm not going to give up my kids then all these allegations of violence began okay so so i didn't so she goes to the police and files uh, for a protective order against me and they come and arrest me and interrogate me which was just one of the worst days of my life they said all these horrible things Um, and and then a couple months later, we finally have a hearing about it, and it turns out that she she made these allegations that I was that I had hit the kids and they had uh, bruises, and she took pictures. So a ski crampon is like a, a spiky thing you put on your shoe, okay? She actually put the ski crampon into my into Briggs' arm and took pictures of it, and I because I have the timestamp of the photo, and she took that to the court and said, I abused Brig by slapping him with a ski cramp on. So I proved to the court that this was all her uh, manufacture of evidence for some kind of child abuse. And so in this uh, protective order, two months later after these events where she had kicked me out of the house, um, they said, this is out like they, they, I will say they did censor her. They said, this is outrageous. All of your evidence is fraudulent. And they asked her to pay the court costs and said, of course, God can see the kids. So where I thought I had won, okay, and I had my, my sister come and I built up some support in the community and said, okay, I finally thought that this drama was going to come to some kind of end. Like she'd been living through this mental breakdown and delusion. And instead, all it did was, escalate she was so humiliated by having losing this protective order and being um, um, branded as a fraud and having to pay the court costs that all it did was escalate everything to like to the moon so now she took the kids to child services and said that i was like the worst father in the world um and that they were they were beaten and who knows hit with a stick and i Didn't feed them vegetables and it goes on and on and on all this insane stuff. Child services never interviewed me. They just wrote this horrible report about how I was the worst father in the world. And then she used that to go into the next court case um, to try and prevent the, the kids from seeing me. So even though the court said we reject the protective order against Scott and that Scott should see the kids. She simply didn't let me see them. She would go to school when I would go to school to try and pick them up from my. I was. I would see them on Wednesdays and Thursdays and every other weekend. Okay, she'd go to the school and take them like an hour before school ended and take them away, and do all kinds of things to uh, to remove them so that I couldn't see them. To eventually, like my oldest, Brig, I never. I didn't see at all, and then later I didn't get to see my my twins at all. Um. And it was an escalating um, series of, and, and this is where I really fault myself and not seeing, she said, I'll let you see them here. I'll let you do this. And then she kept reneging on all of these things. And I didn't see that she was, um, I couldn't believe anybody could lie to my faith so directly, consistently. Like I could forgive it one, two, five, ten 10 times. But when it became the hundredth time, it was like, Everything she was, I would just interpret everything she said to me was completely opposite of what she would do. But that took me about a year to figure out what was happening. Um, and by then the the kids were, um, eventually they were, they were taken away by her. Even though I had a court order to see them and I went to the court and said, you know, send the police in, take them from there. And they said, we won't do that. I went to The Hague, okay. She, she took the kids later to the Caribbean again, took them out of France. And I said, they've been abducted. And uh, I spent three months with The Hague trying to, uh, I filled out all their applications. And they said, we agree with you. And they asked for this paperwork, give me the birth certificates, give me their, you know, their citizenship documents and on and on and on. Um, and they were clearly stonewalling me um, because as a father, you don't have rights to your kids. way you do as a mother and um they they did not want to intervene at all um it was i have i've tried every i've done everything by the by the law using child services the hague the police everything to intervene to legally bring my kids back and in each case i've been stonewalled um, by them. My wife goes to them and she cries and says, "Oh, I'm afraid of him. I don't have any evidence, but I'm afraid of him." And that's sufficient for them to prevent them to returning the kids to me.
1: From reviewing your case, right, it also mentioned in your case that uh, there was a report from the doctor or child services that said that you were a violent person and it was a secret uh, report where you never saw it. Can you explain what happened there because I saw it and I was not sure what exactly was happening?
0: Right, so that, so after the, so after our first divorce hearing, where there was like this, uh, let's say contention over who would, ha, how to settle the uh, custody of the kids, the court ordered um, a psychological evaluation of all of us, the the three kids and Lizanne and I, okay, and so it was hard, This this guy, Doctor Badour, in our town. Did a psychological evaluation, okay? And it was very clear that there's parental alienation going on and that I'm a normal range good father, okay? And that the, I shouldn't be removed from the kids. And same in the, the that Lizanne was um, taking the kids away. This report was not allowed, or I'll say was not allowed. According to the when when we go to the court later, so the court demanded it, the first court, and they said we'll have a hearing in six months after this is done, and we'll evaluate what the what the custody hearing is. Um, the the court prosecutor in this case, her lawyer says, well, we never we never received. Are you still there? I think i may have Lost you? Okay. Just um, beeped. This court report, this psychological report on all five of us has gone, it's, it's missing. So it's the official report. Um, Instead. So I was, I was uh, sabotaged by this. So I arrive in court thinking that they're going to reveal this um, psychological report, which it's all seems quite obvious. It's obvious to anybody in the community. It's obvious to my kids. It's obvious to me. Okay. Um, Every, everybody, but my wife, but instead the, the lawyer says, along with, and the judge agrees with this somehow, the prosecutor, okay, that um, the court, that this report, the psychological report ordered specifically by the court has gone missing, can't be found. But my wife, Lisanne, in in place, in lieu of it, has submitted her own psychological report from her own psychiatrist. And that her own psychiatrist says something about me, who she's never met, (laughs) says something about the kids. And that is used as the expert report in who's the good parent and who's not the good parent. And it's clear that um, there's just a lot of corruption going on in terms of um, right within the community, How, how this happens. And I've asked, like, I'm still asking for where I have a, a court case with the european court on human rights how is this possible that my psycho my psychiatrist report that was um, demanded by the court is somehow missing it's a bit like you know i don't know you can see all these political reports that go go missing that have embarrassing information
2: um and it, it's
0: um and I didn't. Um, there's this child services report. So child services here are called full um, medical social in France, but the, they they wrote a report about the family. They they visited my wife in the house with the kids and said that she's a great parent and she goes there. They go there every week to evaluate her. I mean, she she has a PhD. Okay, she's she's got tons of money, and they have social workers going there every week to help her learn to be a mother. Okay. She's been a mother for 15 years at this point. And now she's asking them to come for help. And, and they're saying what a great job she's doing. And then they describe me as like this, this horrible father who they've never talked to. And so she's, she's formed an alliance with them and used social services to, um, to basically abduct the kids. And then they use them, um, and then they use that report to try and say it's okay that she has uh, she has custody of the kids. Even then, even with that report, I'm still supposed to see them, but I can't, because practically, nobody will enforce it. And if I go to the house, if I go to see them, um, she calls the police, and the police take me away. Um, so I do know where they're living at the moment um and i think my twins are going to school my oldest son i don't think is going to school he's just locked in a room somewhere um
2: it's um it's i don't
0: know what to say rather unbelievable to any normal i think any normal person
1: Yep, it is uh, completely ridiculous. But with that said, I think we have uh, caught up to everything that happened. And can you explain what is currently happening at this moment when it comes to the case and uh, your ex-wife and your children and all that?
0: So there's been, she she has a relationship with the police officers in our town. So I actually tracked her. I have a, um, a GPS signal on her core. And she's, she visits the police station um, about four days a week. Okay. So she has some kind of liaison with a police officer in my town in Chamonix, And um, w- which is relevant to the fact that there are now, there are criminal charges against me. Okay. That have been submitted. And there was a court case without, I couldn't attend because it was during coronavirus times. Um, and they've charged me for violence against the children for a time period. This is, I mean, maybe we can blame this on the French court, but it shows a beginning and an end date. I have not seen my kids or talked to my kids, and apparently I've committed violence against them during that time period, and I've been convicted to two years to jail uh, for this violence. I was not, I didn't go to court. They did this all on their own uh, without me being able to attend or even know about it. I just received the document that I've been convicted and that I should come in. Um, So what I've done so far is I'm under, I've appealed that decision and um, in, um, and in January of next year, I will have another court hearing and I will prove my innocence once again. But my expectation is that this will um, go on for for a long time. Um, Or if I I mean, I to be dark for a moment when I look at a lot of these parental alienation cases, if the court were to decide in my favor that my wife is complete lunatic and is harming the kids. okay, that I think that she might kill them the way it might happen with John Mast or others. So in some ways, I think me being criminally convicted gives my wife a peace of mind. What I realize is that she's she's very fearful of her life and who she is. And I think me having a criminal conviction actually puts my children in a better um, position living in the house um, under her control than if I didn't. So it's it's a bittersweet um situation for me um, but i do my my situation is really that uh perilous in the sense that there's no um my my wife would would either kill the boys or kill me to prevent all of her fraud from being exposed, whether it's the taxes or the ski crampons or um the throwing them you know hitting them whatever all the things that she's has done at this point um,
2: so I'm I'm um,
0: in 20 it's whatever the middle of 2021 it remains to be seen what um, what happens um, whether I end up going to jail um, and then my view is that if I go to Um, or my strong belief is if she's able to get me on jail for a charge where I've never, like, I haven't even had contact with the kids. So how could I possibly have harmed them that she could keep me, she can file another charge knowing that she knows this police officer um, and the prosecutor, that they could keep me in jail for a long period of time. Um, So, um, I have to weigh my my own personal freedom versus um, getting my boys out of um, of their situation.
1: This is the end of the first part with Scott Putnam. We will be back with more from Scott in the next episode. I would like to remind everyone that our goal here is to share knowledge with you guys and show that you're not alone in this. With that said, if you need specific legal advice, please get your own independent advice from a qualified legal practitioner. If you're a minor or if you happen to have difficulties in understanding certain parts of this episode, please approach a responsible adult or someone knowledgeable on the topic and ask them for clarifications. We have done our best to make sure that it doesn't offend anyone. And if you have further questions or comments regarding Find My Parent or this interview, you can always email me at, sk at findmyparent.org. If you're someone who got separated from your own parent and would like to find your parent again, please go to findmyparent.org and fill out your details. With the help of our smart algorithms and matching technology, we hope to help you find your alienated parent or child again. If you are part of an NGO or even a private company passionate about this topic, please reach out through the contact us page in findmyparent.org and we hope to work together with you. Alright folks, that's it for this week. Speak to you next week. Take care, till then can be just like me You're a double, double. Oh, you have-